I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we do a deep dive into the 15th Amendment, which was ratified on February 3rd, 1870 as the last of the three Reconstruction Amendments. You know that we're celebrating the 150th anniversaries of the three Reconstruction Amendments uh, over the next five years. This is the 150th of the 14th. Happy birthday, 14th. But today we're going to talk about the 15th. And here is what the 15th Amendment says. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And it goes on to say the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Joining me to discuss the history and meaning of the 15th Amendment are two of its leading experts and the two contributors to the National Constitution Center's spectacular new interactive constitution. Uh, Rick Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law, and Bradley Smith is the Josiah H. Blackmore II, Shirley M. Nott, designated professor of law at Capital University Law School. What a great chair, Brad. And Rick, Brad, thank you so much for joining. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Wonderful. Okay, let, uh, let us just start, as always, with the text and original meaning. Uh, you both wrote a great joint statement, a common interpretation about what the 15th Amendment uh, was intended to protect. And um, uh, Rick, why don't you give us a sense of what the original understanding of the 15th Amendment was? Sure. So this amendment, as you said, was really the culmination uh, of the, the Civil War or the end of the Civil War and the legal transformations that resulted uh, in the United States as a result of the Civil War. And the reason the 15th Amendment was the last of the three amendments passed at the end of the Civil War was that it was the most controversial, the most politically difficult uh, of the issues to address. Uh, and that's because what the 15th Amendment dealt with was the sort of raw issue of political power and the granting, as a matter of constitutional law, uh, of the right to vote uh, to people in the United States uh, in a racially non-discriminatory way, or basically to end uh, racially uh, uh, structured limitations on the right to vote. Uh, I, I always thought that Steven Spielberg made a mistake when he chose the 13th Amendment as the movie to, uh, uh, as the amendment to focus his movie on about uh, the end of the Civil War, uh, because the ending of slavery, which is what the 13th Amendment addressed, uh, was less controversial than ensuring that the right to vote would not be denied on the basis of race. And as I say, the 15th Amendment was really the culmination of the political fight and struggle over what the Civil War meant and what legal changes to the American constitutional order were justified and appropriate in light of the end of the Civil War. Thank you so much for that. Uh, as you say, the 15th Amendment was hugely significant. Uh, John Wilkes Booth, when he heard Lincoln endorse African-American suffrage, vowed at that moment that he would assassinate the president. So it was hugely controversial and, 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 and greatly significant. But 
Brad, uh, the 15th Amendment um, in some ways was narrow in its original understanding. It was not intended to prohibit all voting qualifications that had racially discriminatory effects, but but really, uh, there was an, 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 it was it was understood more narrowly because of the limited consensus. Can you tell us precisely how broad or how narrow the Fifteenth Amendment was originally intended to sweep? Well, it, it was clearly intended to be narrow in the sense that right obviously applies you know to race. It doesn't get into other categories, and it, it was narrow in the sense that I I think there was a, a strong belief that states had a lot of leeway in setting who could vote. Period. So you could exclude lots of people from voting, and this only narrowed on the basis of race. But I actually do think that Congress intended it to be much broader than the interpretation it would soon get from both the courts and the political branches. Uh, that is, let's take one kind of example: was for years many southern states. Uh, would put in place literacy tests. And a lot of these literacy tests would be waived if your grandfather was eligible to vote. Those are grandfather clauses, right? And of course, what that would do would mean that illiterate whites would still be able to vote because their grandfathers had been able to vote, and illiterate blacks would not be able to vote because their grandfathers had not been able to vote. I think that's the kind of thing that actually the 15th Amendment was intended to do. That, that would go, for example, under language beyond race in the amendment, where the amendment specifically says you can't abridge the right to vote on the basis of previous condition of servitude. I, I do think it was intended to be quite broad, but I think a lot of people don't don't realize just the extent of, of violence in the South, of extra-legal activity, the unwillingness of federal courts to get involved. You know, It wasn't until the, the 20th century that a lot of federal courts being kind of stretching their field of jurisdiction to get some of these cases into court. Um, there is a terrible decision uh, Giles versus Harris in 1903, in which the U.S. Supreme Court basically says, well, you know, this looks like maybe a violation of the act, but we really can't enforce it. We can't even issue an injunction, which I think was a, a terrible decision. So I think the amendment was sort of betrayed by both the political and judicial branches for a long time. And as a result, its effect was very narrow. And it wasn't uh, for nearly 100 years afterwards that it really began to uh, uh, enforce the right of minorities of people of color to vote. And even when it did that, the court seemed to be more comfortable with often using the 14th Amendment rather than the 15th Amendment. Great. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Rick, do you agree with Brad that the 15th Amendment was intended to sweep more broadly than it was interpreted? And tell us more about some of those early cases narrowing the scope of it. Uh, Brad mentioned the uh, Giles and Harris case written by none other than Justice Holmes, which is quite infamous in its uh, narrow reading of the 15th. Tell us about that and other of the cases, the early cases that you discuss right, so on the interactive I, constitution. I, yeah, Jeff, I, I think it's fair to say that the 15th Amendment is probably the most or was the most uh, ignored or, or, or defied amendment in the U.S. Constitution for generations. So what happened is that in the immediate short-term aftermath of the adoption of the 15th Amendment, uh, African-Americans, blacks, former slaves were voting in very high numbers if they were otherwise eligible to vote. So, for example, uh, women weren't eligible to vote at that point, so black men voted, but not black women. Um, but it's really extraordinary the levels of black political participation that took place for a generation or more after the 15th Amendment was passed. So, for example, uh, I happen to remember that uh, uh, two-thirds of black adult males were voting as late as the late 1880s, uh, you know, levels of turnout that are, that are somewhat higher 
than exists today for uh, eligible voters in presidential elections. Uh, but then what happened is there was a massive retrenchment in the South starting in the 1890s, um, and the sort of return of the forces of white supremacy uh, and this concerted effort throughout the southern states to eliminate blacks from political participation in the South. Uh, and these efforts took many different forms. As Brad said, uh, in some of the early stages of this process, there was certainly violence, intimidation, uh, fraud in the election context. Um, and then as these forces of white supremacy returned and became more dominant uh, in what historians call the, the, or what they call the redemption of the South, the Redeemer period in Southern history, um, they started passing laws and eventually state constitutions that enshrined in place this massive disenfranchisement of black voters in the South, despite the 15th Amendment. Um, and uh, some of the ways that, uh, that this was done uh, included uh, measures that didn't actually, you know, specifically deny blacks the vote by race, but did things like adopt literacy tests which when they were administered by local election officials would be administered in a racially discriminatory way. So white voters would get asked different questions than black voters. Um, and things like poll taxes and uh, requirements that a voter be of good moral character to vote. Uh, and a, a whole slew of devices like this uh, that the federal courts basically let pass uh, essentially ignored and uh, were therefore in place uh, from the late 19th century, really up until the enactment of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, so for that period of time, the 15th Amendment was, in effect, a dead letter in most of the South. Um, and I'm not sure we've had a constitutional provision uh, that was so broadly defied over such a long period of time uh, as the 15th Amendment. Uh, now, the reason for that uh, was uh, that there was the, the, that as a matter of national politics, um, there was a loss of political support for black voting rights at the national level in the United States, not just in these southern states where it was being attacked. But by the time we got to the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, there was no longer the kind of support for black political participation that had existed at the moment at which the 15th Amendment was passed. And as you know, both of you have already mentioned, the, the sort of signal moment about this, in, as far as Supreme Court and constitutional doctrine goes, is this 1903 case called Giles versus Harris, in which black voters from Alabama went to the Supreme Court and said, the whole Alabama voting system, you know, is essentially a fraud on the U.S. Constitution. It's, it's in, in defiance of the 15th Amendment. They've eliminated black voters through these various devices. Uh, and in the Supreme Court opinion by Justice Holmes, the court issued these kind of brutally realistic statements about power politics, saying the great mass of white voters in the South don't want blacks voting. And if that's the case, there's nothing the Supreme Court can do about it. In the words of the Supreme Court at that time, um, anything we do would just be uh, empty words on, on, paper form, on a paper form. So it was a tremendous confession of uh, judicial 
impotence in the face of this massive political movement uh, in a way that sounds so completely alien to our modern sensibilities, uh, you know, in a world in which the Supreme Court, for example, by the 1950s, was holding segregation unconstitutional, uh, a world in which the Supreme Court, you know, can, can play a major role in the resolution of a disputed presidential election and everybody obeys what the court does. Um, but in the early 1900s, uh, the Supreme Court said there's nothing the federal courts can do about this, uh, given the realities, as the court described it or saw it, of, of, of power politics. And that's why the court stayed out of this until Congress was willing to come into the picture in 1965 with the enactment of the Voting Rights Act. Great, uh, wonderful uh, uh, discussion. Brad, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the, you know, basically take us from the early 19th century up to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. There were a few cases that ruled in favor of the enforcement of Voting Rights Act. The Gwynn case in 1915 found a grandfather clause repugnant to the 15th Amendment and therefore null and void. But is it the case essentially that with a few exceptions, it wasn't until the 1960s and the Voting Rights Act that the court really began to enforce voting rights? Yeah, I think that's that's very true. Uh, and again, uh, you know, Giles was the precedent that sort of uh, killed much recourse to the federal courts. And of course, uh, courts and state courts in the southern states weren't going to do anything. Um, there were some uh, bright spots, we might say, uh, particularly the white primary cases. That is, in the uh, many states, uh, limit participation in the uh, primary elections to whites only. And the idea was, well, a primary is a private event by a uh, political party. And the court had earlier held, in a case called James B. Bowman, which is also a 1903 case, that uh, the 15th Amendment only authorizes Congress to address governmental action, not private action. In other words, you know, private discrimination may be distasteful, but it is still uh, allowed. So if the primaries are private elections, then the party can limit participation to uh, whites. And in fact, southern states not only did this by having the parties do it as a rule, but in many cases by statute. And the court did strike these down in a case called Smith versus Allwright. Uh, the court says you can't have a state law uh, that prohibits uh, uh, blacks from voting in the primary, that a primary is being carried out by the state. It is an election uh, and is therefore limited. And and there are a series of cases there that in some respects really indicate the problems that the Supreme Court or any court was having prior to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And that is, once uh, white primaries were struck down, then the state simply changed the law and said, well, okay, uh, we won't make it a statute, but we'll let the party decide who can participate in its primary. Uh, and uh, the court, again, struck that down on the grounds that uh, that was, you know, essentially the state handing over its legislative power to a private individual to, to use for discriminatory purposes. And uh, so when, when that happened, then uh, in, in parts of Texas, at least, uh, there was almost an entire parallel primary system that was set up and uh, in, in which public officials would be involved in public voting lists and so on. Whites would all be allowed to vote. Uh, blacks would not. And although there was no prohibition on, and, and then they would have this like private primary. Then they would go to the actual state primary. And nobody who ever lost in the private primary, that's called the Jaybird primary, ever ran in the public primary. Now, they could legally. But I think, again, because of extra-legal violence, shunning boycotts, and so on, they did not. In any case, 
what this shows is that there, there, there was this ongoing kind of game of whack-a-mole, right? Even when the federal courts would get involved, a state might simply change its law a bit and continue to administer it and say, well, this law hasn't been struck down by the courts. It's unconstitutional. So, you know, there was not only the, the sort of uh, abandonment by the Supreme Court of the Giles case, uh, but also even when the court did get involved, its efforts were often frustrated by legislative recalcitrance. And I think this is uh, in part what finally uh, led Congress to pass uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, in 1965, so it was a you know it was a long, slow uh, uh, progress or non-progress throughout most of the 20th century. Uh, great, uh, well, not great uh, in terms of voting, yeah. but <laughs> a great summary. So, so Rick, as you both say in the uh, common statement that most voting rights claims today are litigated under the. 14th Amendment, even though, as you say, the 14th Amendment was not designed to protect the right to vote and does not expressly mention it. Before jumping into all those important 14th Amendment questions, I want to ask, what is the significance of the 15th Amendment today? You say that if um, there were an explicit race-based restriction on the ballot, there's little vote doubt the courts would strike that down under the 15th Amendment and cite the case from Hawaii, the Rice case from 2000, where the court uh, invalidated a law limiting those who could vote based on their ancestry. Um, d- does the Fifteenth Amendment have any other salience in cases uh, today? Uh, I think most of the litigation with respect to voting rights has uh, taken place under uh, either the Fourteenth Amendment, as you said, or the Voting Rights Act since it was passed in 1965, um, and in part because the the statute itself. Uh, is more aggressive uh, and more far-reaching than the the 15th Amendment um, was. Um, So there's been not that much need for litigants in in cases to rely heavily or exclusively on the 15th Amendment. It's certainly mentioned, but it's, it's, uh, you know, almost never the exclusive basis of a a claim. The claims are also brought under, under these two other sources of law, the 14th Amendment or the Voting Rights Act. Um, I, I think that um, uh, you know what's happened is that in the 1960s, the Supreme Court came to the view that even though when the 14th Amendment was passed, it was not designed or intended uh, to address issues of voting rights, uh, that by the 1960s, the Supreme Court had decided that the right to vote should be understood as a fundamental constitutional right that was protected by the 14th Amendment. And so racially discriminatory voting practices uh, ever since then uh, have been uh, capable of being struck down as violations of either the 14th Amendment or the the 15th Amendment. Um, The amendment is, uh, you know, it's important perhaps that the text of the Constitution say very explicitly that denials of the vote on account of race are unconstitutional. so there's no dispute about that, and it is the case that the 15th Amendment, you know, has basically provided the the template or the form uh, that was later used uh, when uh, denials of the vote on the basis of gender were made unconstitutional, um, and when uh, denials of the right to vote uh, for people who are 18 or older were made unconstitutional. Uh, so in that sense. The, the structure, the language, the form of the 15th Amendment has been picked up in later amendments. But as a matter of a sort of ongoing you know, litigation, uh, the 15th Amendment, the space it occupies has come to be occupied as well 
by the 14th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act, and, and even more expansively, uh, protections for the right to vote have been developed through legislation. Wonderful. Uh, Rick, I want to ask you to engage in a thought experiment. You both agree that the 14th Amendment was not originally intended to protect voting rights, and we know that from Section 2, which seems to envision that if Southern states do deny um, African Americans the right to vote, then their apportionment is correspondingly reduced. Imagine that the whole voting rights jurisprudence had not taken place under the 14th Amendment. There are two lines of cases uh, that you say are under the 14th Amendment. One is the one-man-one-vote one doctrine, which has there have to be fairly equal people in election districts. And the second line is the right to get to the ballot and cast a vote. Imagine that all that had happened under the 15th and not the 14th. How would our voting rights jurisprudence look different today? Um. Well, you know, that, that's a good question. First, uh, let me emphasize one thing uh, pursuant to the last question uh, that, that Rick was discussing, you know, the importance of the 15th Amendment. It is important to note that while, while he's quite right that the Voting Rights Act is, in a sense, more aggressive than the straightforward language, and uh, most litigation now is brought under the Voting Rights Act, not the 15th Amendment per se, it is important to remember that the that the Voting Rights Act exists largely because the 15th Amendment authorizes it. So in that respect, you know, even though the 15th Amendment itself is kind of faded into the background, uh, without it, you probably couldn't have the entire statutory framework uh, that is used. Had, had uh, litigation proceeded or the, the court uh, rulings proceeded more under the 14th Amendment, it would be interesting. Uh, for example, if we look at... Uh, uh, Reynolds versus Sims. Now, this is the one-person, one-vote case that says each district for Congress or state legislatures have to have equal population. And that was decided under the 14th Amendment. There was some inclination at the time, and it shows up a bit in a concurring opinion. I, I think it's by Judge Clark. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rick. But I think it's by Judge Clark, Justice Clark that, you know, really these were uh, uh, racial cases that the main reason some of the states were not redistricting and getting such uh, malapportionment where some districts would have 100,000 people and others would have 400,000 was because they didn't want to redistrict because it would empower uh, African Americans in the South. Uh, and it was suggested that maybe the court should have looked at these cases more as uh, race cases. Of course, had it done that, it's interesting whether our whole one-person, one-vote jurisprudence under the 14th Amendment would have developed quite as it did. Uh, and that would certainly be a, an interesting element uh, to, to bring into play. Um, otherwise, I, I'm not sure that there's a, a huge difference as to how, in other words, I think the, the effect has been more on the 14th Amendment rather than on the 15th Amendment. I'm not sure that there's a, a tremendous difference in, in uh, how the court would have handled race-based uh, voting discrimination. But by framing things under the 14th Amendment, it's allowed the court to take a much broader approach and strike down overly restrictive residency requirements, uh, strike down uh, various other restrictions on voting. Uh, now, Rick, same, same question to you. Uh, Felix Frankfurter famously objected to the court entering the political thicket in the one-man-one-vote cases and said the 14th Amendment had nothing to say about them. I mean, is it arguable that all of the modern controversies involving race-based redistricting and uh, Bush v. Gore and so forth might not have happened if the uh, these cases had been litigated under the 15th rather than the 14th? Well, if the litigation were confined to the 14th, I mean, to the 15th Amendment, 
you know, as Brad said, that amendment is, is, is very clear and specific in its targeting of uh, only racially discriminatory uh, restrictions on the vote. And uh, while it's true that there's a, a, was a race issue in the background of a lot of the voting rights cases that the Supreme Court decided under the, under the 14th Amendment, um, many of those cases didn't have an, an obvious racial component, and, uh, and in many of those cases, the Supreme Court didn't say anything about the race dimension, even though it was obviously part of the background of the case. So, um, you know, the court would have had to decide that various practices that it found unconstitutional in the 14th Amendment that did not they were unconstitutional for reasons other than the fact that they involved racially discriminatory practices. Uh, the court would have had to uh, decide that those practices did involve uh, discrimination on account of race if the court were limited to the to the 15th Amendment to protect voting rights. Hmm. Um, so, uh, as you know, as Brad mentioned, um, you know, it's really not clear uh, what the one vote one person or malapportionment doctrine would have looked like if it had to be generated uh, from the 15th Amendment. Um, it's true that, uh, uh, you know, the big problem of malapportionment in the 1960s, which was not a problem just in the South, that it was a problem throughout the country, was that you had had, had massive uh, influxes of people to urban areas, including lots of migration of black Southerners to cities like Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit and New York and Philadelphia and the North. Um, but that the way election districts were designed, they continued to overweight rural voters compared to these urban voters. Um, and there was a racial connection there because the urban areas in many places were disproportionately African-American as well. But I don't think the court would have been able to go nearly as far in providing general protections for the right to vote, as it has under the 14th Amendment, uh, if the only tool the court had was the 15th Amendment, given that that amendment really would have forced the court uh, to focus on only racially discriminatory voting practices. Let's talk about uh, current controversies involving voting rights. Uh, Brad, in your separate statement on the riveting and worthwhile interactive Constitution, which listeners should check out at constitutioncenter.org, you talk about um, uh, two uh, examples of current uh, controversy, voter ID laws and the restoration of voting rights to felons. Uh, these are practices that are not explicitly race-based, but may nonetheless depress minority voting. And you note that uh, states argue these laws help prevent fraud and assure orderly elections. Critics argue that racial minorities are less likely to have this documentation than whites, and this is a barrier to voting. Wh which of these positions do you find more constitutionally persuasive and why? <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a great question. Uh, let me say that, that they're, they're interesting points because, by the way, they, they flow out of in a sense, the problem that the court had that, that we touched on earlier about uh, you know, trying to enforce uh, non-discrimination principles in the face of legislative recalcitrance and how the legislatures would keep dodging the court's efforts. And one of the things that was controversial under the Voting Rights Act was the basic idea of should the Voting Rights Act cover things like uh, a, a voter ID law or even more should it cover um, 
the redis- or, or the uh, the shape of, of government, for example, should cover whether you had uh, uh, five county commissioners or three county commissioners. Should it cover whether you change something uh, like uh, whether a position was appointed or or elected? And uh, this is important because what the court was uh, began to look at here when it held that the Voting Rights Act applied to such things was what is the actual effect on minority voting not merely what the uh, intent was. So, uh, for example, we should assume that a legislature can pass a voter ID law with no intention to discriminate at all, but under the Voting Rights Act, and not under the 15th Amendment as interpreted by the court, but under the Voting Rights Act as interpreted by the court, that can still be a violation of the right to vote uh, on the basis of of race. now, you know, when you ask about those two issues in particular, I mean, I think that uh, I, they're somewhat different. We break them out. I think, as I indicate in the uh, essay on, on our website, that uh, uh, the court got it about right in its key case on voter ID laws, which is uh, Crawford uh, versus, uh, uh, why am I blanking out here, uh, uh, Crawford versus Marion County Election Board. It's a case out of Indiana. And it's essentially why I think the court got it right was that the court said essentially the plaintiffs have not produced evidence that people really are not able to vote because of this law. Uh, at the same time, the court did not foreclose the possibility that some future, pla- future plaintiffs might be able to present evidence uh, of that. And I think that's a, a very important uh, holding on, on the court's part. Um, so, you know, I, I would tend to think the court got it about right on that. On felon voting, it's a, a somewhat different type of question. It's not so much an empirical question as to uh, whether the law prevents minorities from voting. It's really a question as to whether it is a, a sort of a legitimate uh, effort to, uh, or a legitimate part of the punishment, we might say, to deprive convicted felons of the right to vote. And we should note that this appears in several different forms. For example, you can deprive felons of the right to vote while they're actually serving their sentence. And I think most people just at a gut level are comfortable with that. Then you can have depriving felons of the right to vote after they've served their sentence or, but well, not after they've served their sentence, but after they've served their jail time and they're out on parole or something like that. And then you can have a permanent bar to voting, something that says you can't vote ever again if you're convicted of a felony. Uh, and, you know, I think those are somewhat different questions. They have racial implications there, but uh, uh, I'm not sure that, that, you know, I don't think there's much question about empirically this affects African-Americans because there's a higher percentage of African-Americans incarcerated, largely because of the war on drugs, and we get in all kinds of things there. But then the question is, you know, is this a legitimate part of the punishment, or, or does this have to go once a person has served their sentence? Is this part of the sentence, or have they served their sentence? If they've served their sentence, then it's hard to see how one could justify uh, restricting the vote, and it would have that disparate impact on, on race. Great. Rick, in your separate statement, you talk both about these voter ID laws and also about other laws, early voting laws, that make it easier to vote. Uh, you note that you know, almost every state that's passed these Republicans are in favor of these laws and Democrats are against, that the proponents say they help ensure the integrity of the political process and the critics have a bunch of arguments against them, including there's no need for them, that they suppress voting and they're passed for partisan purposes. Which which of the arguments do you find more constitutionally persuasive and why? 
Well, as, as a constitutional matter, as long as the you know, existing doctrine remains the same, uh, you know, the courts made, made clear for about 30, 40 years now that uh, if a law doesn't uh, define people by race directly, uh, then you're going to have to prove that the law was adopted for a racially discriminatory purpose in order to have it held unconstitutional. Um, and, you know, it's interesting with, like, felon, disenfran- infran- felon disenfranchisement laws, for example, um, it was the case that when some of these laws were passed in the late 19th and early 20th century, you know, not all of them by any means, but at least some of them, um, there is a clear record that they were specifically passed to try to minimize black political participation. Uh, so the U.S. Supreme Court actually found that in a case from Alabama in the mid-1980s, uh, that the provisions in the Alabama Constitution that had been adopted in this period we talked about earlier, in the early 20th century, that were still in effect in the 1980s, uh, which disenfranchised people for uh, particular kinds of crimes, some crimes and not others, some felonies and not others, uh, that that provision had been adopted specifically for the purpose of disenfranchising African Americans, and the Supreme Court held, well, that's unconstitutional. Um, it's also the case that, you know, if the argument is, especially in the era of mass incarceration, where you have disproportionate numbers of uh, African Americans in, uh, incarcerated uh, compared to their presence in the population, that if you argue a felon disenfranchisement law is unconstitutional because it has more of, a, of an effect on African Americans than on whites, um, you can't win an argument of that form as a matter of constitutional law. So you have to turn to the Voting Rights Act. And a lot of these cases have been litigated. Um, the courts uh, uh, overwhelmingly uh, have held that felon, felon disenfranchisement laws are not reached by the Voting Rights Act, are not covered by the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and, um, you know, this gets very complicated uh, in terms of how far Congress has the power to go um, in deciding for itself what the Constitution means and how to appropriately um, enforce it. Um, so um, any of these laws, th- th- this is a general problem with civil rights legislation. The voting rights issue is, is, is a subset of this general problem. Uh, it's the problem is the tension between uh, legal doctrines that say laws are discriminatory only if they have a racially discriminatory purpose, and you have a problem that uh, there may be laws that, that really have significant disproportionate effects against African Americans, but it's hard to prove discriminatory purpose. So there's a problem with that approach. On the other hand, uh, if legal doctrine takes the view that laws that have a, a disproportionate effect along racial lines are, are illegal, just for that reason alone, then lots and lots of laws have those kinds of effects because uh, to the extent, you know, laws have differential effects on people based on their income, uh, their educational level and the like, and that correlates with race, um, then lots of laws would be illegal as a result of that. So this is a huge struggle in all areas of civil rights legislation, and it's an ongoing struggle in the voting rights area now. The courts haven't sorted this out fully. That's why these voter ID cases remain as controversial as they are. That's why the, partly why the issues of felon disenfranchisement remain controversial. Um, these issues are probably going to be settled more through politics than through legal decisions, is my guess. Um, but we're still very much in the middle of the court sorting through all of this. 
Great. Well, you've well summed up this uh, tension between the requirement of racially discriminatory intent under the 14th and 15th Amendment and the case law. It's time for closing arguments, gentlemen, and I will ask you, Brad, to what degree do you imagine, uh, you know, smoking guns of racial intent uh, popping up in the future? Uh, in Ari Berman's new book on the right to vote, he notes that although, although the Supreme Court in the Mobile case said that uh, multi-member districts weren't unconstitutional because there was no evidence of intent to discriminate against African Americans, a smoking gun later emerged, a former Mobile congressman confessing, we've always falsely pretended our main purpose was to exclude the ignorant vote when in fact we're trying to exclude not the ignorant vote but the Negro vote. And my question is, if to the degree the 15th Amendment requires a smoking gun of intent to discriminate, how, how often are we going to see that in these cases in the future? Well, obviously that's uh, you know a tremendous difficulty, and that's why the Mobile decision and, and others were controversial, and part of the reason that the next time the uh, Voting Rights Act was extended, one thing people don't realize is the Voting Rights Act actually has uh, uh, parts of it at least have, have automatic, uh, uh, actually the whole thing has an automatic expiration date, and Congress has kept extending it. It's now extended through, eight, uh, I think it's 2031. But in any case, right after those decisions, the next time Congress extended it, they fairly specifically indicated that you could use sort of the adverse uh, impact as a basis for a claim under the Voting Rights Act to make clear that, you know, while it couldn't overrule the Supreme Court on what the Constitution provided, it could make clear that the Voting Rights Act would allow that adverse impact claim. Obviously, it's very hard to prove intent, especially once people know that they can't publicly state that intent, so they will not. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think one does have to, uh, you know, it, it's not impossible. Uh, you, cases can be proven. A lot of people, you know, they watch too much TV and they think you have to have a smoking gun. Circumstantial evidence can prove a case. Uh, and, and so that can be done uh, as well. And I think part of, you know, whether the Supreme Court's right or wrong or how much we should allow adverse impact will depend very much on how people view the current state of race relations. Uh, and people will, will view that very differently based on their ideology, on their life experience, on people they know. You know, it's 35 years since the mobile decision, since uh, what was going on there. It's, uh, you know, 50 years uh, since the Voting Rights Act was passed. Uh, I think most people objectively would recognize, you know, we look at how Americans react to questions like, would you care if you're about interracial marriage? Do you think blacks should not be allowed to vote? And so on. I think there's clearly improvements in race relations. The question is how far have those gone? How much can we sort of loosen up a little bit and require actual discrimination? Because as Rick pointed out, many things that can be proven by adverse impact or that might have an adverse impact may not be because, you know, of race. They may be because of other legitimate tools. Um, it's a problem we've dealt with for a long time. For example, we've banned literacy tests, and we've banned them now expressly by constitutional amendment. Uh, Literacy tests are not the, the dumbest thing in the world if you want to have an electorate that is better informed and, and smart and so on. Uh, that may be a legitimate goal. Some would say it's not, but I think a lot would say it is. The problem is it became clear that literacy tests were being used, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, in a discriminatory fashion. And it was finally decided whatever benefits we get from literacy tests are not worth the cost, and we're just going to ban them, period. We're going to write it right into the Constitution. You can't do this. Um, and I think that's a little bit of the problem that we, you know, face in this question of adverse impact. Uh, you know, how much are we going to prohibit legislatures from doing things that might be legitimate 
because we're concerned that that's a pretext for other motives. I can't say that I have the you know the right answer to that, and and who knows? Maybe that answer will change if we feel like race relationships are getting better or worse ten or fifteen years from now. That's the dilemma. For now, we've taken the position that adverse impact, at least under the Voting Rights Act, is uh, acceptable evidence. And at this point in time, that is probably still the, uh, I would guess, probably still the correct way to go. Rick, Brad, thank you so much for that, and thank you for a wonderful discussion. Thanks, Jeff. I enjoyed it, Jeff. Thanks. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, at Constitution CTR. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.